I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we have some guys in the aisles with some Bibles. If you need one, they're going to make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get you one of those Bibles that's marked at Ecclesiastes 3 for you. Julian Barnes, an accomplished, award-winning English writer, is 71 years old. And he's desperately afraid to die. He used to claim to be an atheist. Then later he said he was an agnostic. Because his opinion was there's no good reason to think that there's a God. Now that would further imply that there's no such thing as life after death. And therefore, nothing to be frightened of. And that phrase, nothing to be frightened of, is the title of one of his books. And yet the truth is, this Julian Barnes is indeed afraid to die. The New York Times book review correctly diagnoses his condition as thanatophobia. That's the fear of death. He thinks about death every day and he admits that sometimes in the night he is, quote, roared awake and, quote, pitched from sleep into darkness and panic And a vicious awareness that this is a rented world, he says. Awake and utterly alone, he finds himself beating his pillow with a fist and wailing, Oh no, oh no, oh no. And his dreams are even darker. Sometimes in those dreams he's buried alive. Other times he's chased, surrounded, and outnumbered. He finds himself, quote, held hostage, wrongly condemned to a firing squad, informed that there's even less time than he thought. The usual stuff, he calls it. And perhaps this is the usual stuff. Because, in fact, death is the sum of all of our fears. Of being alone, of being abandoned, of being condemned. When you wake up in the middle of the night, What are you afraid of? In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who wrote it, faces up to our fears by asking the hardest questions that anyone can ask about the meaning of the universe, the existence of God, and of life to come. The difficult question of death comes up again at the end of the chapter we're going to consider, at the end of chapter 3. And we're privileged to have God's communication to help us with the most important issues of life, including this one, as we continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so thankfully, we do not have to grope in darkness like a Julius Barnes and all of those who reject God's word. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we saw last week, it says that there is a time for everything. And we saw then that it literally says there is an appointed time for everything. And then the list of everything begins in verse 2 with a time to be born and then a time to die. And now at the end of chapter 3, focus is again on a time to die with the end of verse 20 of chapter 3 saying, to dust all return. But Solomon gets there. He started chapter 3 thinking about a time to die. And now at the end, he's back to that. But he gets there by first thinking about all the injustice that he observes in the world. Verse 16 of chapter 3. 
And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Now, every week we have an outline inserted in your program so that you can follow along with the message. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take a look at it now. And I say, first of all, we see here that God shows us the way things are. God shows us the way things are. In verse 16, the emphasis is on the place where justice and judgment should be. So this is referring to the courts of law. Places where a righteous process should occur, that is judgment, and then a fair outcome should be handed down, that is justice. But instead, there is sometimes wickedness, and wickedness of various sorts. And we've all seen it and read about it, perhaps some have experienced it. The innocent are convicted and the guilty go free. A judge who is supposed to be impartial has a relationship with a defendant. A juror nullifies justice to make a statement on a completely different matter. A wealthy person is able to hire the best lawyers with the best connections, including with the judges, and so gets off while a poor person rots in jail for the same thing. A police officer may taint evidence. A witness lie to protect a friend. And on it goes. And so this is seen, and especially heinous in the courts of law, but it's seen this is this injustice, this inequity in life in general. Psalm 73 says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he wonders, why would that be? How long, Lord, are you going to allow that to go on? And we react rightly, against that we react against injustice because as human beings we are innately aware that it's wrong and we're innately aware it's wrong because god has placed that awareness in us romans chapter 2 says the requirements of the law are written on their hearts that is everybody everybody has a sense of things that are right and things that are wrong given to them by god We have this alluded to earlier in chapter 3, in verse 11. We saw last week, he has set eternity in the hearts of humanity. So it's another occasion in which the Bible tells us God has made us. God has so constituted humanity that we know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But that's only true if you understand that God is part of the equation. If God has removed all of these other kinds of things, these kinds of things happen. That's why for our own Supreme Court in our country, at the beginning of each session, the marshal of the court announces, quote, God save the United States and this honorable court. But when life is lived under the sun, that phrase that occurs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, That is, living life only from the perspective of earth, only with the here and now in mind, then there is no constraint on people's behavior toward one another. And so you see the kinds of things that I mentioned earlier. And Solomon's lament is not just that things go wrong in life and in particular in the courts of law, but his lament is that there's nothing that can be done about it. People get away with it. Crime, it appears, pays. 
Martin Luther said, Solomon is not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because it cannot be corrected. That's the way it looks from under the sun. But maybe, in fact, something will be done about it. So I say in your outline, God shows us the way things are, but then secondly, God shows us the way He is. Verse 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. We have this natural sense of justice because we are given by God a sense of right and wrong, and that shows up very early you don't have to have children and observe them playing very long till one of them is going to say, hey, that's not fair. God is the one who has given this. And so this is a reflection on the character of God that we have this innate sense of justice. And the Bible has much to say about the importance that God places on the administration of justice. In the law, he said, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. The psalmist asked, can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? So verse 17 is telling us about God's justice, and it tells us a few things about that. That he's going to establish this justice in his own time. It means that the courts in our society do not have the last word, thanks be to God, since there is all of this injustice. And furthermore, we don't have the last word either. God is the one who does. And in verse 17, we find a few things about this justice that God is going to mete out. First of all, that it's, it's in the future. We will not see how all of God's purposes play out until a future time. In fact, he uses the future tense in verse 17. God will bring to judgment. It's in the presence of the throne of God that this is all going to be played out and the books are going to be balanced. People today are lulled into an arrogant self-confidence because of the patience of God. Because he hasn't done it yet. Because it's something yet future. And so they think that because we don't see the outworking of God's plan in his providence today, there must be no justice and therefore no God. The Apostle Peter addressed this in Second Peter chapter 3. He said, in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. And then a few verses later, he goes on to say, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. He's saying that time is inconsequential. It's of no matter to God. And then goes on to say, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you. The reason this hasn't happened yet is because he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So please do not make the mistake that the postponement of justice means that there is no justice and there is no God and that you'll never have to answer. It's in fact a reflection of God's character and his character quality of patience and of mercy and of grace that's giving you space to come to him and to repent. And Peter goes on to say, finally, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Do not mistake God's patience for his inactivity. The demonstration of his justice is going to come in the future and it is certain. Verse 17 says God will 
bring to judgment. It will happen in the future, and it most certainly will happen. There are a few themes that resound with such a clear note throughout the Bible as the justice and judgment of our God. He will do this. And verse 17 tells us that that justice will be complete because it includes the righteous and the wicked and every activity and every deed. Now, the Bible teaches that there are two kinds of judgment. One is for unbelievers called the great white throne of judgment. And before that throne, every unbeliever from all of history will stand. And it's complete in that everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ will be there. And it's complete in that all activities will be evaluated. And so the scriptures say it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So friends, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, understand that there is coming a day when you will stand before the God who made you and you will give an account for what you have done with what he has given, in particular, the gift of his son. And if you're a believer in Christ, there is a day when we will all stand before our Lord. The Bible says that believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. To be sure, the nature of our judgment will be Completely different than that of unbelievers. But we will all give an account for how we have used what God has entrusted to us for him. And yet in all of that, even though that's a time that as we think about our own sin, even as believers, we might shudder. We still should rejoice because we know that there's coming a day when all things will be made right and every intent of the heart will be made known. Injustice will, injustice will be no more and justice will reign in God's world. But still, though there is this certainty from God that he's going to balance the books in the end, we may still wonder why justice is delayed. In our minds, we might think justice delayed may be justice denied. So why is God taking so long? And one answer to that question is given in verse 18. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see what they are, that they are like the animals. Hmm. Why does God do this? He's testing so that something will occur. Now, this testing is not something we pass or fail, but it's in the sense of proving, exposing, showing. It's the kind of testing done on metal when it's heated white hot and the impurities are removed and its true quality is shown. Here we're being told that exposing, proving is what God is doing in humanity. By allowing this to continue to go on for his specified time. And so I say in the outline that God shows us the way things are. And he shows us the way he is. But thirdly this. God shows us the way we are. This testing in verse 18 is proving, exposing what we are like. When we see things in the world that are not as they should be. And that we can ultimately do nothing to change but rather it's in God's control and his timing, then we're forced to consider our own limitations. It exposes, it proves, it shows, it tests our own limitations. And verse 18 is saying that it's God's design, that he uses this frustration on our part to show us a couple of things about ourselves. The first is this, I have it in your outline, that we are mortal. That we are mortal. 
Verse 18 says God tests humanity so that he tests humanity. He allows this frustration in his control of his world so that for the purpose of causing us to see that we are like animals. Yikes. Now, when you read that, you may immediately and rightly object to comparing humans to animals, since, in fact, the Bible repeatedly teaches that there's a qualitative difference. Only humans are made in the image of God. Only humans are, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, made a little lower than the angels. And you, God, crowned them with glory and honor. So since all of that is true, we need to be careful that we identify the point of comparison that's in verse 18 accurately. It's certainly not saying that we're like animals in a biological or an evolutionary sense. It's not talking about our biology. It's talking about our destiny. And from the perspective of life limited to under the sun, the destiny for humans and of animals is the same. That's why verse 19 says, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. This is one of the strongest statements in the Bible on the inevitability of death. Solomon's point is that people die just like the animals. And for all the differences between us, we do share this one thing in common. Whether man or beast, we will all meet the same fate, at least with regard to our physical bodies. Death is the great equalizer. Every time you see roadkill, you should remember that we too are mortal. One commentator has said, animals are living creatures just like us. Like us, they've been given life and breath by their creator. But that life will not last forever. The day will come when they breathe their last just like us. With our parting breath, we will all go to the same place, falling to earth and returning to dust. But using this language, Solomon is, by using that, reminding us of God's curse against humanity's sin. That dust we are and to the dust we shall return. In the words of the children's nursery rhyme, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And to that extent, we are no better and no better off than the animals. The psalmist said this, people do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. And so what is your response to the certainty of your own mortality? I read the story of Trappist monks who together dig a grave, and every day they go out to the grave site, they peer over the edge, and they ponder their own mortality. And then when one among their group dies, they lower him into the grave, and they cover him with dirt, and then they dig a new grave, and they start the ritual all over again, never knowing for certain who will be the next to die. And in doing that, the monks are applying the wisdom of Moses, given to us in Psalm number 90. In this famous verse, in the middle of Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And in the midst of that psalm, we're told about the inevitability of death and the brevity of life. And as a result of that truth, those truths, teach us to number the days that we do have to count them and to use them wisely. But not everyone responds to death with the wisdom of Moses or of those monks. 
Some try to laugh it off. Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But other people are afraid to die. And understandably so, apart from a relationship with God. If they're living and viewing life from only under the sun, without any comfort that their fears of ever finding meaning of life will ever be satisfied. And so Solomon, looking at life under the sun, concludes, as in verse 19, everything is meaningless. The English writer Somerset Maugham reached the same conclusion. He said this, if one puts aside the existence of God and the survival of life after death as too doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself what I am here for and how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now I'm going to read on with what he says in just a moment. But you would think, all right, he's thinking clearly. Yep, those are the right questions. Those are the right conclusions. You would think then he would come to the right answer. But then he says this, now the answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and so life has no meaning, he said. Why? Because he has rejected God. Why? Because he is looking at life from only under the sun. The novelist, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky said this, if God does not exist, then all things are possible. And when God does not exist, then people also have no hope. Our inability to ultimately change what's wrong in the world moves us by God's design to see our limitations, the most profound being our own mortality. But that mortality has its root in something else. And so I say in your outline, God shows us that we are mortal and he shows us that we are sinful. If physical life does not last and therefore points to the meaninglessness of life under the sun, well, then perhaps there is hope in spiritual life. Our bodies don't survive, but maybe our souls do. But from the limited perspective under the sun, even that is pure speculation. Verse 21. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So here it's like, who knows? Who knows what happens? Under the sun, all we see is the grave. We see that people die like dogs die, and that's Solomon's point. We're limited because we're mortal and we're limited in our knowledge. And if we're going to know anything about what happens at the moment of death, we're dependent upon God to tell us. Now, Solomon believed in life after death, but his point is that man cannot know about life after death under the sun. But the God upon whom we are dependent to tell us has in fact spoken and revealed to us that he is the resurrection and the life, but people still reject it. God has spoken and people willfully ignore his words. And so when people today say, who knows? It's exposing, it's proving, it's showing their sinfulness as they reject the truth that God has given. And as always in Ecclesiastes, the, light, the, the answer is to look at life from a different vantage point. One from above the sun. 
And that's what we see last. God shows us the way things are. He shows us the way he is. He shows us the way we are. And last in your outline, he tells us the way things should be. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. God has assigned to us what he has for us to do, our work, whatever that is, our station in life, our lot in life. And if we're to live above the despair of life under the sun, then we must see our tasks as from the hand of God and pursue them with that in mind so that we're not only doing them to get something done, but to please the one who assigned it. And that gives purpose to our lives. But it only does so if we accept what God has said in Scripture about eternity and the fact that our efforts here matter to God and they will not be forgotten by Him. Now, for how many days are we to do this? For how many days are you to do this? Am I to do this? Well, the answer, of course, is for all of them. And how many is that? How many days you have, how many days I have, only the Lord knows. And that's why at the end of verse 22, it says, who can bring them to see what will happen after them? We don't know how many days we have. So use profitably the days you do have. Solomon is reflecting the truth that Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, when he said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That is, it does no good for us to worry and fret and kill ourselves with anxiety because of what might happen tomorrow. Concentrate on today's work, and today's work, given to you by God, assigned to you by God, is therefore good. But that enjoyment, friends, of what we do only comes when we trust the God who has made these promises about the meaning that can be had in our work, and that He will use our lives not only in this life, But he will reward our work in the next. Our work cannot give us a relationship with him. But when we have a relationship with him, it gives meaning to our work and all that we do. And so we're going to close. But as we do, that is then the ultimate question for us. As we contemplate with Solomon all of these big questions about existence and meaning and where is God... It all comes down to what do you believe about God and what is your relationship with him? And then it's through that prism, it's through those lenses that you're to see everything else. Every moment of every day of your life given to him and carried out for him because it's assigned by him. And so how do you have that relationship? You have that relationship because you realize that you're one of these sinners that was spoken about earlier. You recognize that Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, has done what you could not do. He lived the life you were supposed to live. He died the death that you and I deserve. And through that, both of those are applied to you when you come to him believing who he is and what he has done. And now you have a relationship with this God. And because of that, he begins to change you from the inside out so that your perspective on everything is altered. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do... As a believer, thank God. Thank him as always that he has told us in his word so we don't grope in darkness why we are here. 
and the meaning to the task that he has assigned to us is given by him. And for those of you that do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, from your heart to him, when we bow, you say to him, I'm a sinner. I've been going my own way. So I ask you to forgive me. I believe who Jesus is. He's God. He died on the cross for my sin. And I'm going to follow you. That's what that repent means. I'm going to follow you with with my life. Your take-home truth then is this. God uses all things to accomplish his purposes. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather in your presence, for allowing us to sing praise to you, to hear these encouraging testimonies of your work in and through your people in another country, and now to open your word and to be reminded there of the fact that you are in control and we control nothing. And that should cause us to see ourselves as we really are, that we are mortal, that we are sinful, that we are completely dependent on you for revelation, for information, to tell us who you are, who we are, and what your purpose is for us. Thank you for giving us that. So that, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path, and we go through life in the basking in that light. We ask you, Lord, in this sacred moment to draw some who came into this room and did not have a personal relationship with you to yourself. Oh, Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do, moving upon the hearts of some in this room to cause them to see their need for the Lord Jesus. And for all of these things, Lord, we will praise and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.